Hello and welcome to Success Story, the show that tells the very real and personal stories that merge chronic illness and sex. I'm your host, Heather DeKaiser, therapist, wife, and survivor of triple negative breast cancer. Each week on Success Story, you're going to hear from individuals and couples about how illness has affected their relationships and their sex lives. Not only do we talk about just how challenging these effects can be, but we're also going to talk about what the hell we can do about it. Listen along as stories of sexual challenge and tragedy become stories of success. Hello again, and welcome back to another episode of Success Story. I'm really sorry that I've been MIA for so many weeks. When I started this podcast, I had this fantastical dream of having all of this time to say all the things about illness and sex. And then life took a look at my plans, took a giant shit on them, ripped them into tiny little pieces, blew them back in my face and said, try again, oh healing one. So now that the legs are shaved and sawed off of my pedestal, I have daily challenges of balancing everything from focusing on still healing my mind and body from my cancer journey to running my business trying to find a new normal, not sure one exists. But anyway, so many people have been asking when the next episode's coming out, so here it is. It's October now, and it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. This is super near and dear to my heart. I've had two aunts fight breast cancer. I'm a survivor of triple negative breast cancer, and I feel like everywhere I turn, another woman I know has been diagnosed. One in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer. One in eight, you guys. And on my Instagram, I'm doing posts every day, spreading awareness about checking your breasts, where to donate if you want to, etc. So check all that out. But all that being said, I'm super duper excited for this podcast episode in honor of Breast Cancer Awareness Month. I have a very special guest with me today. She's my first guest on Success Story that isn't my husband or family. Her name is Erin, and she's graciously agreed to come on here and dive deep about her life and journey. We met because of breast cancer. She is a colleague and fellow therapist, but I am honored that I now get to call her a friend, a fighter, and also a breast cancer survivor. So we welcome Erin Henry to Success Story, and I just want to say that it's been amazing getting to know you and talk to you throughout going through cancer pretty much at the same time. I know I was a little bit ahead of you time frame wise I think, in getting my diagnosis, but I know you really helped me personally through some really dark days of this, so thank you for that. But Erin, tell us a little bit about yourself why you agreed to do this with me and why you think this is important. Sure. Um, my name is Erin Henry and I am a therapist in town as well. Um, that being said, why is this important to me? I think, well, when I first saw that you were launching your podcast, I got super excited because I knew it would be amazing. And I think it's important that we are speaking vulnerably authentically, openly about our experiences. Um, I did, as you know, I did share my journey on Facebook, on social media, Facebook and Instagram, quite rawly, I would say, um, which I got a lot of 
amazing feedback and and I felt like when people asked me why I did that I felt like I didn't have a choice mm. it was just something that I had to speak truth about um because when my my grandmother had cancer breast cancer mm. which I didn't even know about until I don't even until my mom got cancer wow so I was probably 23 when I found out my grandmother had breast cancer had a single mastectomy okay and there was no talk about it. There was zero. It was in your open. family or in general? In, in general and in my family. So I didn't find out that she had a single mastectomy until I became her caregiver. And after my mom had passed, I stepped in as her caregiver. And her um, nursing home social worker called me and asked if she could buy her a prosthetic because she had been using socks to stuff her bra oh, wow. for all those years. Oh, my gosh. I know. So I was not going to do that. <laughs> I wasn't going to go down that way. So I figured it was important. You know, I think a lot of this is intergenerational. I think there's some intergenerational trauma around this and even the cause of this in some ways. And so part of my healing journey was to not to do it differently mm. and to not do treat, go through breast cancer treatment in silence the way that my grandma did. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Well, and you mentioned that your mom passed away. Can I ask a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. She had ovarian cancer. Okay. So when I was 20, I'd say 23, 22, 23, she got diagnosed with ovarian cancer and then passed away when I was 25. So does cancer or the BRCA mutation, I know some people know about the BRCA mutation and some mm -hmm. people don't. Does right. that run in your family? It does not. Okay. Right. So, which is interesting, but yeah. when I, as part of the treatment, they did an investigation. They did a genetic test. Okay. Um, I had had a false BRCA negative with a different test from one of those ancestry DNA tests. Okay. So, those are amazing for finding relatives. I don't think they're <laughs> amazing for, for checking your genes as Holy far crap. as genetic, genetic disorders or things like that. Yeah. But, um, no, so I did have a false negative, and then I got an actual genetic test test okay. through the hospital and and my sister did too and we're both negative okay okay so was that a relief but it doesn't really explain the cancer in right. your family then right right which they you know the way they people have explained it to me was there's lots of genetic there's lots of breast cancer genes we just don't mm. know of them all yeah so okay yeah and who knows why you know that's what i've been wrestling with why do we get breast cancer mm -hmm. yeah who knows I don't think there's an answer. Yeah. Or not a one-size-fits-all anyway. Right. Uh, one of my doctors had said that having breast cancer is almost like having your own DNA as a woman. Yeah. So, like, what even if you are same age, same demographic, same everything for two women, uh -huh. same type of cancer, treatments and everything could look different because mm. everything, of, like, could be different about why, how, who, what, when, where, basically, mm -hmm. which I thought was really interesting. That is interesting. Especially with so many different types of breast cancer. So many different types, yeah. So what kind of therapy do you do? I do, now I do Gestalt, it's called Gestalt Equine Assisted Psychotherapy. And what the hell is that? What the hell is that? It's basically the study of relationship while being in relationship. Um, and horses... Oftentimes, people describe horses as mirrors. So they, and I don't really necessarily agree that they are mirrors because mm. they are horses. <laughs> but I believe that horses have the capacity to mirror back and reflect back our relationship patterns. 
Um, so I do equine assisted work, helping family couples, trauma survivors, individuals. Um, and then I also do nature-based work. So I meet people for hikes. And then I have an office where I work with my dog, Buddy. Oh, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. And did you do all of that work even pre-cancer? I was studying the equine piece pre-cancer. The equine took me about four years to get certified. Okay, that's a um, long time. It's a long time. I took my time, but it's a, a yeah, it's about a four-year program for me. Um, so I was training. And then I graduated in May when I finished treatment. Okay. Or almost finished treatment. Okay. Yeah. So what types of populations do you work with? All ages. All people. Yeah. Individuals, couples, families. families. Yeah. What's your favorite? Um, I've been enjoying couples and families lately. Mm. I do. One of my favorite pieces to work with. I used to work with kids a lot and teenagers a lot, which I still do. But... One of the things I used to say is that you can't fix the problem by fixing the kid. So so I've started working with parents, mm. which is actually couples work, yeah. but looking at it from a parental lens. So oftentimes working with parents on how do they relate to each other, the couples, and then how does that manifest and relate to their children. That's fascinating. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people think of it that way. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So... Being on Success Story, um, thank you so much for doing this with me. I think that it's super important just in honor of Breast Cancer Awareness Month and to hopefully share a little bit about your cancer journey. Like, how did you find out that you had cancer? What kind of breast cancer did you have? How did you find out you had it? Emotions, thoughts, getting diagnosed. Can you kind of just walk us through what that was like for you? Sure. Yes. So August, it, it was last August. I'm trying to remember now. It's October. Yeah. August yeah. of 2020. So a month after, not a, yeah, about a month after you, it was like August 13th or something. Um, I, in July, was having coffee. Fortunately, my tumor was very close to the surface okay. of my nipple. So I was drinking a cup of coffee. And when I put the coffee cup down, I grazed my breast mm. and I felt a lump. And I was like, I bet it's cancer because I, there was all this cancer in my family. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, I tried to talk myself out of it. But I called my oncologist or I called the my general practitioner physician probably a week later. Okay. Um, and just explained to her at that point, I was pretty sure it was not cancer. So... I said, you know, this is what I found. Do I need a mammogram? What should I do? It's probably nothing. I remember telling her very explicitly, this is probably nothing. And she said, I just got finished with my my own year of breast cancer treatment. Holy crap. And so we are going to get you in here right now. And within like three days, she had me and she had me in there getting a mammogram, a diagnostic mammogram, because she said that she was not surprised that it was cancer. Um so yeah, then then as you know, like the journey just starts very quickly. Yeah, uh, it's a triple positive. So you were triple ne- negative. I was yeah. triple positive. Okay. Um, her two positive, and then the hormones receptor positive. Now, had you been doing self exams every month or every so often? I'm not consistently. Okay. And what was interesting was I had just turned forty, so I had asked my 
my gynecologist for years when I needed to start getting mammograms and they said 40 mm -hmm. and then COVID hit. So my birthday was in October. I couldn't get a mammogram because they weren't giving them because right. it was COVID. So I knew I was due for one, Wow. but I, you know, no. And so just get kind of inconsistently checking. Yeah. Just so it felt like it just kind of randomly popped up. So when you grazed your breast, you, I bet this is cancer was your thought. But uh -huh. then when you talked to your doctor, you said, I bet this isn't. Yeah. So was that wishful thinking or what the, there's a difference there. What was that? Yeah. Cause at that point I had talked to so many, like I talked to my friends and my boyfriend and said, I want, you know, I told them what it was and everyone was like, no, you don't have cancer. Mm. It's just, you know, cysts are super common. And like one of my friends felt it and she's like, I've had one of those. Mm. So it was just, you know, I, at that point I did not know how common it was. Okay. At that point, I just thought it was like a rare thing. I knew one person consciously. Okay. I knew one person who had breast cancer, right? There were actually many more that I know that I didn't know about. Right. But yeah, so it didn't seem like it was that common of a thing. Okay. But by the time when I was getting the mammogram, it was fairly obvious that it was cancer because of the way that they were reacting. Okay. Yeah. How so were they reacting? not answering my questions, <laughs> you know, is this cancer? And they said, ah, you know, 20% of the time it is. Mm. We don't know about you. So vaguely dodging the questions. Yeah. But you just feel it when they, you know, when, and you see for us, like I didn't know what the tumor or cancerous tumor looked like, right. but I'm looking at the imaging, seeing it. And then they instantly called in the, um, radiologist yeah. to come in and take a biopsy so that to me was a red flag right because if it was just a normal mammogram they wouldn't have rushed me into a diagnostic exam mm -hmm. and then he was very quiet oh. um, and then they had the care coordinator come and take my sample okay to the lab to meet her and I thought that was strange because I was like why would they have her come and do a job that's not her job right and she said, just, I want to be a face to the name when I call you tomorrow with your results. I was like, oh. Okay. Okay. Here we go. Yeah. So I went out. I remember we went out to dinner right after that. I had a margarita and I was like, I have cancer. Yeah. Like, I, I know it. And then they called me back and they and I did. Okay. So emotions, like what thoughts, what went through your mind and your body? What did, what did they say to you? Do you remember? Yeah, Julie, you know, you like remember the name of the person who calls you um, to tell you of breast cancer. She just called and said, hi, Erin, it's Julie. I met you yesterday. We got your results. And unfortunately, you have, yes, you have breast cancer. And then I lost consciousness, of course. I just dissociated because the rest I don't remember. Yeah. Um, she gave me a bunch of information and kind of explained what was going to happen next. Okay. And then the flurry of phone calls started the next day of mm -hmm. just, you know, Kaiser calling me with lots and lots and lots of appointments. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what did you do that night? <laughs> Honestly, I got drunk. Okay. <laughs> I shouldn't. I was like, what, what a lovely response. <laughs> Let me just get drunk. I called my boyfriend over immediately and then my sister and then I went through, like, family members, my brother. I didn't call my dad because I didn't want to tell him over the phone. Mm -hmm. But I called 
you know, my closest people. And I think my sister brought over like a six pack or something and mm. I just got drunk and I couldn't sleep. I remember that. Yeah. Cause I was in such a state of shock. Yep. It was just like, just shocking. I remember, I think she even gave me like a sleeping pill of some sort and I couldn't sleep. It was just like the mind racing mm -hmm. and like, this is not good. Yeah. This is not going to be good. Yeah. Yeah. And then all the appointments started, I imagine. Mm -hmm. And that whole process. And that whole process, yeah. yeah. I know for me, there was almost a relief when that started. I don't know how it was for you because it was like, okay, I'm actively yeah. doing something about it now right. instead of just waiting. Right. But what, what was that like for you? Did you have that same experience or mm -hmm. was it was it different? Yeah, I, it was like... That was when you started to get answers, right? It's like, because mm -hmm. they call and they say you have breast cancer and then you don't know what that means. You know, it's like, what, what is that? Do I, what is that? Do I have chemo? Do I lose my boobs? Like, mm -hmm. I, you don't know the answers. So for me, it was like every time Kaiser called, it was one more piece of information. It was like, okay, now we're going to go do a biopsy of the whole breast or what I, I forget what they, the next like, actual sequence. But it was like every test was closer and closer. And then every doctor's appointment was more information. You know, even if it wasn't information I liked, at yeah. least it was information. And then I felt relief when there was finally a treatment plan. Okay. So I was like, okay. Because when you don't know what you're dealing with, that's the fear. It's like that whole the nervous system unknowns are dysregulating to the nervous system. So it's like when you're sitting in that unknown you know what it, we don't even know what stage it was I at that point I wasn't even sure like is it going to kill me mm -hmm. or am I going to survive this you know that's the the piece so during that stage how long was it from when you got all of the information to when you actually started your treatment plan or got your port mm -hmm. put in because I know you did chemo and right. the infusions and stuff right so they do they do a 30-day Kaiser has a 30-day protocol where you okay. have to start something within 30 days. Okay. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. So it, for sure 30 days. I went through some changes. I fired some doctors. Okay. I did a lot of advocating and checking things out um, because they, they were going to recommend or they did recommend a double mastectomy and then chemo. Okay. I'm so glad I didn't do that. Um, and so I, I have a friend who's a breast cancer pathologist at Ohio State University. So he was actually the person I talked to the most. I think most. you and I talked in between there somewhere. Because I remember yeah. you talking about what this I was person. Gonna, yeah, and what I was going to do. Yes. And so he said to me, you know, you why would you do the surgery first? Because there's no way of knowing if the chemo worked. Which now, that is what I hold on to for hope. <laughs> like, the chemo worked and I know it. Because if they, if they would have done chemo... Afterwards, when they it's when they go in and check the tissue, they find out if the chemo worked. Right, right. So I would have had I wouldn't have had that. Right, they would have already removed my breasts. So I did it like very last minute change of like I, change of plans where I was supposed to start or have my surgery scheduled on like September seventeenth or yes. something, and then I ended up instead starting chemo on the seventeenth. Okay. So I swapped it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you said now you're really glad you did it that way. Yes. Very much. Because I know I hear that from some women that I've talked to. And maybe mm -hmm. you talk to other women that you've met throughout this process mm -hmm. about chemo or surgery first. Yep. 
why do they want me to do chemo first? If a woman came to you and said, why are they telling me I have to do chemo first? Like, I, I have this tumor in me. Just get it the fuck out. Right. Like, what what right. do you think that you, you would say or what what words would you offer them? Right. Well, the way it was explained to me was you don't know if it worked, that the chemo worked. So when we want to know if the chemo worked, right? And they weren't, they, the doctors weren't giving me this information. It was just like, mm-hmm. you're going to do, you know, it felt like you're just going to do this and then you're going to do this. So, so I didn't even know I had a choice until I talked to my friend. Okay. So then I called and said, why would I? I asked the question, why would I do surgery first? And no one had a good answer. Mm-hmm. Like no one gave me some clinical evidence as to why I should do that. Okay. So, so when I talked to my, I, cause I fired the other oncologist who okay. said it was okay to do she told me that I came in there with a plan to have the surgery first, so she didn't even try to give me information about that. Wow. I didn't like her. I fired her. So I got the new one, and when I talked to her, because, again, I had that choice. I was, like, just a day before surgery or two days before surgery or something, and I asked her what the benefits were of surgery first, and she said there are no benefits of surgery first. The benefit of surgery second is that we'll know the chemo worked, like your friend said. So let's do that because then they would decide if they have to do more chemo or not. Okay. So I think it's part of my type of tumor as well. That might matter. Sure. But I don't know. Well, and I wonder too if it matters depending on if they have information about what stage or how Mm. big the tumor is. Like if there's a chance, has it? Is there a chance it could have broken off and gone somewhere else? If you do chemo first, you actively start fighting it wherever it's at. Like, you're going to go throughout all of your body and kill it immediately. Whereas if you do surgery first, then you got to heal first. Right. And it's got extra time to grow. Exactly. Like, mine would have been stage four in another three months. Right. Like, I didn't have time. No. And I don't think you had a lot of time either because yours was fast growing. Mine was fast growing. So that would have been dangerous, it sounds like. I think so. Yeah. It doesn't make, I just, I, what happened was I got to the surgeon first. Yeah. They, the first appointment they scheduled me was with a surgeon. So what does a surgeon want to do? Cut it out. Do you think that's just because of who could get you in the quickest? I do. Mm. I do. Because mm-hmm. then that kind of speaks to, is our health system set up to advocate for us in right. all the appropriate ways or not? Right. Right. But then you just touched on another point. You, it sounds like you advocated for yourself a ton throughout your process, especially in the beginning. Yes. I don't know if a lot of women know to do that or are encouraged to do that. Right. And I didn't know except for my friend. That was the reason I knew to ask the questions. Because, you know, like you're in a trauma response. Yeah. And you're like, tell me what to do to get this solved. Right. So you just expect them to tell you everything. And they, I don't think, I think that. They probably are so in it that they don't even think about the options, you know, like this is what they do. So, yeah. Okay. So in the beginning of all that, who or and what did you turn to for escapes or support or like what got you through, you know, those first few months or that first time? Because I wasn't getting drunk all the time. <laughs> that was a reaction to the first, to the diagnosis. So then after that, I actually stopped drinking um, during treatment because it's not healthy. Yeah. Um, and it's linked to breast cancer. There's a lot of linking of alcohol to breast cancer. So that was interesting because I had to 
come up with all kinds of ways to support myself. Mm -hmm. And I came up with this little program for myself. I don't know if I ever told you no. this. No. Yeah. So in my training, we talk about the three basic needs for attachment, which is food, touch, and movement. Okay. Okay. So I decided that if we all need food, touch, and movement to develop a secure base, right, for to feel good in the world, I should probably integrate those three things into my world every single day wow. to get through treatment. Okay. So I created a, a movement board. I got a Peloton. I created a movement board. And I put, and I ended up coming up with like five M's. So I called it like three M's at first, which was like movement, mental health, or meals, movement, and uh, mindset. Mm. Let me think about this. Yeah. Okay. So... Every day I would check them off my list. I would do a Peloton ride. I would check off that I could eat and I would try to eat healthy. And then I would check off my mindset, which was my, which I started off as mindfulness. Sorry. So I meditated every day. Okay. And then I added meaningful connection, which was reaching out to people. Cause I think it's important to have relationship mm -hmm. and contact. Um, and then mindset was my fifth one after mindfulness. Okay. And that was, Learning to tell myself positive things to get through it. So I created a little, like, survivor program. I love that. Mm -hmm. And it would be, like, days I didn't want to, I would say, I have to get my M and I'm going to ride a Peloton, even if it's only for 10 minutes on low impact. And then I would, like, and then I turn meals into mental health nutrition. Okay. So, which is, I am trained in that as well. So I increased my proteins. You know, so I really started focusing on, like, what are the foods that I know are, are good for my mental wellness? Mm -hmm. And I ate those. Okay. Um, so I had all of those kinds of protocols going. How did you know what your body wanted during chemo? Because I know, like, I expected all my same comfort foods right. to be my comfort foods during chemo. Yeah. And like to this day, I still yeah. cannot eat my comfort foods and mm -hmm. I wanted nothing to do with them during mm -hmm. chemo. So yeah. how, what was your experience with the food piece when you started treatment? I just hated food. In general? Yeah. I think I texted you one day and was like, all I want to do is eat pizza. Yep. And I quickly, you did. I quickly got through that. Okay. And then I just didn't want any more pizza. I was like, this is disgusting. I thought all food was disgusting. Yeah. I really hated food. Taste or because of your stomach or what was it? I just think probably all of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I know I, I got a book, a really good book, um, The Cancer Fighting Kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. And that had some really good recipes. And what I ended up craving was chicken. I just wanted chicken all the time. Oh, wow. I could not eat vegetables. I thought vegetables were disgusting. I thought they tasted like blood. Disgusting. Like they that iron taste. Like taste. Iron. Yeah. Ugh. Yep. Ugh. Gross. Yes. No. And I'm a veggie eater. Like, I love vegetables. Yeah. But all I wanted was, like, chicken. Mm. So I ate a lot of chicken. Which is good because you wanted protein. I wanted protein. Yeah. Um, but that was about it. I couldn't even, I mean, people were like, just try to drink a milkshake. And I couldn't even have a milkshake. It yeah. was like gross. It was disgusting. Yeah. It was disgusting to me. If I did crave something, I would grab it. Okay. But. Did you have any crazy cravings? Not really. I'm thinking back. It's been a while since I thought about it. I, I remember the, um, all the steroids. Oh, God. Those did make me hungry. Did they keep you up at night? Uh-huh. 
So I remember like it was the chemo days when I was on all the steroids mm-hmm. where I would be hungry and I would just want to eat everything. Like burger. It was all protein though. It was like burgers and chicken and I would just eat a lot of food the first couple of days after yeah. chemo. And then I wouldn't want to eat again. I want to go back to your five M's that you created. Mm -hmm. Do you think that was your therapist mindset Mm -hmm. creating or helping you create that for yourself? Or do you think that was survival? Do you think that was intuition of what you needed? Was that something Mm -hmm. you had seen somewhere about what was helpful? Right. All of it? I feel like my therapist self, if I look at parts work, I feel like my therapist self is my wise self, which is my Mm -hmm. intuition. Okay. Does that make any sense? I think that's very therapisty. Well, then it was my therapist. <laughs> <laughs> it was. I mean, I literally did that because of my mentor and his little attachment cycle. Yeah. So that came from that. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, like being a yoga teacher, be all the things. It was just like, I know movement is medicine. I yeah. just know that. Yeah. I know that mental health nutrition is important, right? So these are all the things that I, like all of the training I had taken along the way. I know mindfulness is really good for stress response and and everything, you know? So it's like all of these things I, I know are good. So you had a lot of positive things in place to help get you through all of this. Mm-hmm. Were there days though where like that shit didn't work where you could not move or you could not be positive or you could not eat Mm -hmm. or practice mindfulness or meditate or get on the peloton or do yoga Mm -hmm. how did you get through those days where just it didn't seem like nothing or anything worked right toward you know how chemo is cumulative by the but fifth and sixth round, there was three or four days a week after chemo that I just slept. And I'd take an edible. Okay. Cannabis edible. And just knock myself out. And that was it. And that was like, I knew, I knew when you, you know, you, you know the nervous system, right? So when you look at rest and digest, you look at the parasympathetic response, you need to just heal. Yeah. So to me, my body had been through so much at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Those were days where it just like there were giant X's on my movement board. I mean, I took a picture of it. It was mostly checked box. And there was like the last couple of rounds. It was just like three or four days of that week that was just nothing. Yeah. Um, and I didn't I don't like medicine, like traditional medicine. Mm-hmm. So that was what I would do is just take an edible or some CBD, which they say is actually really good for triple positive and mm-hmm. HER2 positive. The cannabis okay. is really good treatment. Um, so it didn't hurt at all yeah. to have that, but I would just sleep and sleep and sleep and not interact with anyone but my dog. <laughs> well, unconditional love, baby, right there. Mm-hmm. Was your treatment team on board with the cannabis mm-hmm. and edibles? Because I know some people's treatment teams are like, ah, be careful or eh, don't do that. They'd almost rather you take the narcotics, which I don't yeah. know what's up with that. I don't know either. No, I had an oncologist who at one point had been trained in the cannabis stuff, so she was super cool with it. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. And no negative side effects or no interactions with the chemo and, like, um, liver, because I know chemo gets processed in your liver, Mm -hmm. and so they say that um, CBD oil does as well. Oh, I don't know. At least that's what my treatment team told me. Mm -mm. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Okay. No, and again, like, there's a lot of studies showing that 
for her two positive, you want you even want high dose THC and CBD. Okay. Because it helps. There's studies that show that it shrinks her two positive tumors. See, I don't think this is talked about enough. So, can you say a little bit more about that piece? Just like, how did you find this out? Did you do your own research oh, or no? I had I just found some breasties like you mm. along the way, and I just happened to find one who's very, very, very into natural naturopathy and okay. like nat- you know just natural solutions. Um, and she sent me a whole bunch of studies and was like, "You because ha- she's triple positive. No, she." was her two negative. Okay. She said, for you, you should do this because for you, this is actually really beneficial. And she just like knows her shit. So she just sent me all these articles. So there, there's articles out there. There yeah. are articles out there on all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you reached out for support and breasties. Which one of us started using that term? I think you did. I don't even remember I where like I got it. You, I think you said to me, like, there's your besties and then there's your breasties. Like someone had told you that. That sounds so smart. And I and then we just started calling each other breasties ever since. It applies. Totally. It definitely oh, it totally applies. Because your breasties are very different from your besties. And then your breasties become your besties because you go through this crap together. Yes. I know. <laughs> so what did your treatment all consist of? You did chemo. Yep. Then surgery. Surgery, double mastectomy, reconstruction. Okay. okay. Yep. yep. That was February. I did the double I did the mastectomy. And then they now do reconstruction at the same time. Okay. At least for me, they did. Okay. Nipple sparing. We were able to save my nipples. Oh, wow. Because I had a complete response to chemo. What does that mean? It means there is no evidence of disease in my body. After chemo. After chemo. So, yeah. And with, I know that doesn't always happen with the hormone positive folks. Mm -hmm. They don't often see, which is why they have to do all the endocrine stuff because Mm -hmm. they don't often see a response to the chemotherapy. Right. I had the, like you, right? We had complete responses where there was no evidence of any type of disease. Exactly. Left. So because of that, there were clear enough margins, obviously, so they could save the nipples. Which was another reason why I'm so glad that I have the, the mastectomy after chemo because I would not have kept my nipples. And my my boobs look very real now because of the nipples. <laughs> Isn't that amazing how far treatments have come? Amazing. Yeah. And I got these swapped out. So then they they do the expanders for a while, which is what they reconstruct with. And then the expanders were in until, when did I get those? August, the end of August. Okay. I got my implant in. Okay. And then I finished my HER2. So HER2 is the last part, which is also a chemotherapy that's like, I call it chemo light because it doesn't have a lot of side effects. And that okay. I was on for a year. So I finished that last month. Okay. And now I'm done. Okay. So you're completely done with active treatment. Totally now. Yes. So are there parts of what some people would call inactive treatment that you're still doing? Like physical therapy or um, and anything like that that you're still doing at this point? No. Okay. Okay. No, and I said no to endocrine therapy because it just wasn't I ha, I tried it and it made me feel terrible. Mm-hmm. So it didn't have a high enough benefit for me recurrence rate wise to, to to continue. Was that something that you decided along with your medical team or just you decided and told your medical team this is what I'm not doing and it's my choice? I told them I was not doing it, and they said they completely understood and supported the idea. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
So what do you think your like highest highs were of your cancer journey and what were the lowest lows for you? I know that's like a really loaded like, question. I hate the lowest lows are so low. <laughs> they were so low. Just thinking back to that, like just like thinking about it, it's so sad. Yeah. Um, I think the lowest lows were like going through it during COVID and Ugh. feeling so alone. Yeah. Because like no one could come over and visit and take care of, and it was awful. And no one could go to chemo with you, right? No. No. So what'd you so do during your chemos? Alone. To pass the time. I think I just started watching shows and reading books. More like watching shows because, you know, when your energy is so low, I couldn't even, I found I couldn't even take in information. Mm. Like reading was exhausting. So I just watched dumb television probably, if I remember. I kind of blocked some out now that I'm thinking back. <laughs> Talk to the nurses. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but that was low. That was hard. It was just trying to like, realizing that I was... I, I feel like I was on this journey by myself. Even though it wasn't, it, I felt like that. Yeah. And that was really hard. And then the really low days where you just feel so awful. I remember, like, just sobbing some days and just being like, I cannot do another chemo. I cannot go through another day. This is horrible. Horrible. Do you ever remember feeling that, like, the night before chemo? <sighs> I remember not being able to sleep those nights because it was like, I don't want to go wanna. tomorrow. Because you know what you're in for. And you have no choice. Have no it's going to run through your veins, and you know how it's going to make you feel, mm -hmm. and you, you have to do it. You have to do it. You have no say in it. None. Yeah. It was horrible. Chemo sucked. I hated it. I have, like, selfies of some videos I took of myself during it. Did you do that? Because they're Once terrifying. Like, I looked at one today or this weekend, and I, and I mean, I look like a hot mess. <laughs> it's just like, I am so glad that's over. Because I was just like, okay, I'm going to ride my Peloton now. <laughs> I was just like puffy with no eyebrows. <laughs> well, no eyebrows, but you did the cold cap. I, and I did microblading, so I had like drawn on eyebrows. <laughs> and some left, and I had the cold cap, yes. So I also had like these really ridiculous looking ponytails. Yeah. But you're glad you did that. Very much so. Yeah. And now you're rocking the most adorable pixie cut. Pixie. Mm -hmm. We ended up at the same place I with the pixies. <laughs> and we do rock them, yes, I will say. We do. Okay, so what was a what was a high? High. If if there is one. I think I mean, it's not like there was a high to during treatment. But I have grown so much, and I'm such a strong badass now that I feel like that's a high. Like, I am unfuckwithable, I call it. Unfuckwithable. You cannot fuck with me. Say that five times fast. But I love that. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, I don't know if you feel that way, but I feel very, very, very empowered. Because I had to go through it alone. My Back to my mentor with the, with the Food Touch movement. Mm-hmm. How you gain trust in self and others is to go through a hard time and come out okay. Wow. And you do it again and again and again and again. That's attachment cycle. Right. So. Which is interesting because we usually try to talk our clients out of the revolving doors. I know. Damn. I know. Okay. So say more about that. So I went through a hard time every single day. So the whole piece is like I learned how to trust myself. Because every, there was no one else, like I had support, but there was no one else going through this with me, mm -hmm. except for my dog, 
Yeah. Really. I mean, he was, I, I lived alone, right? So it was me and my dog who were there all the time mm-hmm. together. And even he would go to daycare sometimes. <laughs> even he left <laughs> even he to go play. Me. So, <clears throat> so I went through that attachment cycle with myself, which was like I had to learn that I was going to be able to do this. And I actually was able to do this. So by the end of it, I felt like I could literally overcome anything Damn. by myself with the help, which I think is true, right? Like, we have ourselves and we have others, but we really have ourselves. And yeah. Like that's, that's, I mean, we're always in relationship, but like once you can really trust yourself to be able to get through anything, then your support system becomes, it's a different level of interaction. Mm-hmm. It's a different type of relationship because you don't need them, you know, but you do. I don't know if that makes any sense. On the way here today, I was blasting Sia's song, Unstoppable. Oh, I love it. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, I can't sing worth a shit, but I was singing in the car, and I stopped at a stoplight, and this other person was watching me <laughs> do the singing, and I just kept going yeah. because I no longer think too much about what other people think of me, exactly. but I realize how much I thought of that before. Yes. Like, how much I talked to my clients about not thinking about that and how much I actually thought about that. Same. Totally. Now I you. really don't care. Yeah. Like, I I mean, there's little parts of me left that still care a little, but, like, sure. Not really. But really? I mean, not really. Like, they get a little smidge of attention, and yeah. then it's like, bye. You know? No. <laughs> no, after you go through this, mm-mm. nothing was harder ever. Even, like, my mom dying at a young age was not mm. as hard as this. Like Really? Really. Nothing. Because I felt like I was on my own doing this by myself, which is, like, a core wound of mine. Like, mm. having to do something, like... Feeling like you're alone during a really hard time. Ugh. Isn't that like the core wound of everyone? Yes. <laughs> right? It like, almost like gives me tightness in my chest thinking about it. Yes. So being able to go through a really hard time, trusting myself was a big deal. Being held by friends, but just from a yeah. distance. Yeah. More because of the pandemic. Okay. So mentioning friends, how did cancer affect your relationships, friendships, family, um, I know that you have a boyfriend and you mentioned your relationship was newer at that point, but mm-hmm. just your relationship with yourself, relationships in general, what did you, your relationship with cancer, like mm-hmm. knowing that it was grandma, mom, now you, like mm-hmm. relationships in general, how did cancer affect them? Right. I'm much more choosy mm-hmm. about who I spend time okay. with. Okay. I feel like I used to be very accepting of everyone all the time to a fault where it was just like so accepting. Is that hindsight looking back or did you know that back then? Hindsight looking back. Okay. So I was more tolerant of behaviors that weren't necessarily all that supportive or healthy, Mm. if that makes any sense. So the People who, I had a lot of people, like you and I were talking earlier, I had a lot of people who showed up for me at the very beginning. Okay. It was like an outpouring of love, and it was amazing, you know, and it was people that I didn't expect. It was like all these people, people that were kind of more acquaintances or people I hadn't known for a long time. Um, and it, I actually reconnected with my high school girlfriends. You met wow. one of them at the wig store that day. Yes. Yeah. So now they're coming back. We're making this like an annual an annual reunion so I'm like closer with the friends who showed up for me and I've stopped putting energy in the people who weren't there for me 
So that's a big deal. So I don't, I'm not as forgiving <laughs> when it comes to like, sure, I'll just spend time with whoever. You know, I, I'm very, like, now I've learned how precious my time and energy are. And so I'm going to be much more discerning when it comes to who I'm investing my time with and my relationships with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and okay, so what about family? I know earlier in the podcast, you mentioned you didn't want to tell your dad you had cancer over the phone. Mm-hmm. So just relationships with family, like what did you mm-hmm. notice about how cancer affected those? I got really close to my siblings. Like my brother and I, my brother and dad live in Ohio. Um, and my sister lives here. So she, my sister and I have always been close. Okay. So, but my brother and I were not, we were close, but we weren't intentionally close. He called me every week and it was consistent, sometimes twice a week. Wow. And he came out to visit and him and his girlfriend helped to like make my house cozier so I could feel comfortable staying, like being locked in there for six months. Um, so I had, my family really pulled together. What did you do to make your house cozier? We went and got some different furniture, just like an extra, like kind of cozier couch. Okay. And then some lamps and comfy pillows and nice blankets and just uh, things that snuggle things. So literally comfort items. Literally comfort items, like pajamas, slippers, all the things to make a Peloton, you know, all the things to like set up for cancer treatment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I wasn't, I was just like, before this, I was never home. It's like now I'm never home either, but I was always out and about doing things. Okay. And so being at home is not something I was used to doing. So I had to turn it into a cozier environment. Well, and I know you're a nature lover, right? Mm-hmm. Specifically trees. Mm-hmm. I know. I love them. I know that I like them. last October, I um, went on a trip for my birthday and I took pictures of trees and sent them to you. You Oh, that's right. Oh, yeah. And ask, where were you? Aspen? Dylan. Dylan. Lake Dylan. Yeah. I was hugging trees this weekend. Yes. Were you? Yes. Does it feel good to be able to be outside again this fall, not feeling like complete crap? Not feeling like complete crap. But I did almost, I went outside all the time. Did you? Yeah. I, Chatfield, I went there all the time. Okay. Yeah. Constantly. Yeah. Yeah. I still got outside. Do you notice that the air smells different now? Oh, it's so nice. Mm-hmm. Things just smell different on chemo. They do. Than they do not. I know. Chemo's the worst. And taste. Yeah. Taste and smell mm-hmm. are just ruined. Yeah. So what about your relationship with yourself? Mm-hmm. What ha- what changed there or didn't change? Or what what did you learn throughout cancer? I, I think I just doubted myself before. You know, I, d- I think I was a little more relying on other people. Or I, I, maybe I sought my strength externally or something. Mm-hmm. But now I just feel... I just know that I can do anything. Mm-hmm. And I have like a lot of faith in myself. It's just a, it's like unwavering faith in myself. Where does your faith come from? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. I was thinking about this earlier because like when I was a child, I remember going to camp, like church camp and stuff. Okay. I was raised in a church. And I was raised in a Mennonite church, so you decide to get men- you decide to get baptized when you're older. Okay. 
I refuse to get baptized in the church. I want to be baptized at camp in the trees. Mm. So I was thinking about that earlier. It kind of goes full circle back to your your conversation about the trees, probably from nature. Like I, mm. there's something about um, finding any type of like my spiritual faith from being outside. Have you always been spirit more spiritual? Uh huh. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think that's why like. Again, I didn't want to do the baptism in a building. I didn't believe that God mm. lived in a church. Ah. Just like, and I think I was thinking about this earlier because now my practice, my actual therapy practice is outside. Yeah. So like everything shifted. <laughs> I kind of like to bust down the walls of anything that's inside. And I think I, there's something, when I go outside and I sit next to a tree, I do a lot of sessions by trees with clients. I feel very centered and connected there. Mm. So I don't know if that's where I find my faith, but I find strength there or like some type of spiritual practice. Well, it's interesting, too, because trees don't move mm -hmm. in that they're stable, but yet parts of them move. Exactly. So like we have a stable center, which is what sounds like has been a process for you is finding your stable center. Mm -hmm. And yet parts of you are still moving. Yeah. Like have developed. Yeah. Totally. And are flowing. Totally. If we're going to, you know, like be therapisty for a minute right. about this. <laughs> totally. Which is very yeah. therapisty. Yeah. But. I hadn't thought. No, that's true. Yeah. When you look at the, what is it? The 12 C's of, or 12 S's of self. I forget. IFS stuff. Yeah. They talk about the core self and the yes. characteristics of, of core self. That's what it's called. That's like a tree. Mm -hmm. Yes. Very, very steady. Very sturdy. Um, and I feel that way now about myself. So, yeah. yeah, I guess I went through all of this to find my center. Do you believe things happen for a reason? That's so weird. Um, I'm not sure. If I, I ask everyone this it, question now, so it's I don't not know just if I you. would phrase it that way. Like, do I believe anything happens for a reason? I don't know if I would phrase it that way. How would you phrase it? I'm thinking. Okay. How do I want to say this? I feel like life, there's a saying I'm trying to think of right now um, that talks about believing that, you can either believe that life supports you or, or I forget how the saying goes. I want to say that I feel like everything just is. Okay. <laughs> you know, um, but I also think we can make meaning of, of, of just anything. Mm. You know, I think you can always find meaning in your life. I, don't, I, I guess the, my problem with everything happens for a reason is that I have to believe then that I got cancer for a reason. Yeah. And I don't really feel like I got cancer for a reason. I feel yeah. like I got cancer and then I did something with it. Okay. If that makes more sense. Yes. So you can either believe that life is he here to support you or harm you. <laughs> There's mm. a saying around that. I forget yeah. how it goes. I can't think of it either. Brain yeah. fog. We right. were just talking about Chemo this brain. too. I feel like it's right on the tip of my right tongue, then. but I it's ugh. yeah. We're gonna think of it when we, we stop are. recording. We are. So it's that. It's like you can decide. I can look around and go, "This is life supporting me because I'm learning some. I can. I'm learning some lessons here." But I wouldn't say that I got cancer because I was supposed to grow into this direction. Okay. I think I I see it more as an opportunity. I had a mentor once, and this just made me think of this. It's not gonna help us think of the saying, but. <laughs> 
she was talking about flows of energy mm-hmm. and we can either flow with energy yes or we can flow against it and yes. constantly work against everything and work really hard and like just everything will be super super difficult right or we can just stop fighting and we can turn around and go with the flow of energy right and that always has stuck with me for the last decade exactly it's like the Tao. yeah yeah that so you step in like if there if life has a flow to it which i do believe it does i think okay. like prana right life force mm. i feel that in trees i believe in that okay. in spirit right? yes so there's like there's a life force that emerges Call it God, call it whatever you want to call it. doesn't matter to me. There's a flow that happens. I think that there's blockages in the flow. I mean, this is also Chinese medicine and Ayurveda, which is yoga stuff and even gestalt stuff. Yep. Right? There's blockages that happen from the flow. Cancer could be considered a block. Yes, I was just thinking that. So we work with that, you know, and so it's like... You got to move. That's where a lot of this movement stuff comes from, too. It's like you have to help that stuff to move through you and then move with life. Yes. And let life support you. Yeah. Okay. So a big area of my field of work is sex and sexuality. Mm -hmm. And I believe that sex and sexuality is everywhere. And Mm -hmm. a big reason why I started this podcast is because illness affects sex and sexuality in a very, very, very big way. And I believe that sex is also energy. Mm -hmm. So let's get to the juicy stuff. Cool. How was this area of life affected for you because of cancer? If you can speak a little bit to that. Yes. I mean, well, this is a, it's, a cancer that impacts mostly women, mm-hmm. right? mostly. Um, breasts, part of femininity, yep. hair loss, hair, part of femininity. Like So there was a loss of my feminine identity mm-hmm. during cancer treatment that it was terrifying I mean, from the beginning. Like, I think the first thing I said was, I don't want to lose my hair. Yeah. It wasn't even like, I don't want to lose my boobs. It was like, I don't want to lose my hair. My boobs would never grow back, but my hair will, you know. And I was so focused on that. I was also scared of the estrogen piece and, like, the hormone blockers. You know, mm. what does it mean to lose your estrogen? What does it mean to be thrown in menopause at yeah. 40? You know, so that stuff was going through my head. Um, like you said, I was in a very a newer relationship. So it was like, how is this, how is this going to impact my relationship? Yeah. And my boyfriend and I had, a, even then, had a very sexual relationship. Um we're sex positive, I guess they call it these days. Sure. Labels. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever that means. <laughs> so I was worried about what that would mean for my relationship. Am I even going to be able to have sex? So sure. how do you keep a new relationship? Like when you're in a honeymoon phase with someone, like we were thick in the middle of a honeymoon phase, having sex all over the place, like going on these camping trips and having sex in nature constantly. Like everything was so by trees. fun. By trees. <laughs> sex with the trees. <laughs> yes. And then... And then it's like, boom, the honeymoon phase ends, and it's like, now I'm going to go through this. My hair's going to fall out. I'm going to lose my boobs. I'm going to have terrible, painful sex. How will this even, how will this last? Yeah. Yes. It's terrifying. It lasted. (laughs) It did last. But it wasn't, I mean, the sex, that sucked. It was just hard, you know. 
And how do you think that like sex was affected at different stages of your treatment? Like beginning, getting Mm -hmm. the news, then during treatment and chemo. And maybe you can can even, I mean, I know treatment just kind of, or active treatment just kind of ended for you, but maybe you can even speak a little bit to recently. Yeah, I mean, first, well, like, I mean, the it's no one wants to have sex when your body's getting physically attacked. Like, when you're, because we're, we're literally in a stress response. I'm getting therapy again. That's but okay. You're literally in a stress response, right? And when you're in a stress response, you you don't feel horny. It's not like your body's like, hey, let's have sex now. It's a pleasure. No, I'm trying to fight something. So I was not feeling very sexual mm-hmm. at all. On the other hand... I like sex and I know it's really pleasure is really good to also get you out of a stress response. Mm. So I was working with that as well. And I also really wanted to continue my bond with my boyfriend. Yeah. So I just found a way to have sex anyway is what, you know, and I had to, sometimes I had to do mental prep, you know, or I'd say to Brad, like, I'm not horny at all right now. You know, we'll try again tomorrow. Okay. But, um... So just honoring where you were at. Yeah. And just, like, today, not today. And, but then I, you know, I found some lubricants. I mean, the part of it was also, right, you're thrown into menopause. Mm -hmm. So sex was more painful. And I've never had painful sex. I've always really enjoyed sex. (laughs) So I've never had the pain. It was not, it was a foreign thing to me. Sure. Um, And, like, I know a lot of women do struggle with that. I don't, I'm not one of those women. So to me, it was like, wait a minute, I've never had to use lubricant in my life. And all of a sudden I'm dry. No, you're reliant on it. Totally. And so like, you know, the Western docs, they gave me some random things to try. They did say Astroglide and different types of things and nothing worked. It was sticky and gross and I hated it. Okay. And then I found that brand Reverie, which is like a really natural hormone free, all the good stuff. Um, and I just used, I think I used it like almost every day because, or every two days they have it on the label. But, Which is recommended, right? Yeah. And you just, and that way you're restoring the moisture to the vagina during ongoing. So it wasn't just like, I'm going to have sex today. I'm going to use one of these. It was like, I'm going to use this so I can continue to restore the moisture. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be so painful. So like the moisture is one part and then just that thinning of the wall is another and you know, sometimes I'd have to stop because it hurt. And sometimes I wouldn't be sexual at all, you know. When they gave me a double mastectomy, I didn't have sex for a while, <laughs> you know. There's certain parts of the journey where you just... Sex is not really the high priority yeah. during cancer treatment. You adapt and be flexible. Yes. I think, based on how you're feeling. Yes. You know, I talked to some people who said like, well, we had a very regimented schedule of sex where once a week we did it no matter what stage of treatment I was in. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, that's a mentally tough person right there because what if it was the day after chemo or what if like your stomach or your digestive tract was all, you know, messed up or just not having a good day? Like, yeah, no, you know? Yeah, no. I mean, for I some people, that really works. But right. I think for a majority of people, we, we do have to think about being present with our bodies and honoring the space where we're at. Right. Sounds like that was more your That process. was more where I was at. And it was really just the chemo. You know, after the chemo, I have estrogen back in my body. You okay. Know, I'm, I'm, I'm back to normal now. I feel great. I, I mean, I wouldn't say normal. I'm not as 
I don't think my libido is quite returned. It's getting there. When I get really high libido, I get super excited. Okay. It's like, yeah, you're back. You know, <laughs> that didn't happen during treatment ever. Like I never, like I did not have a libido during sex. It was like, I'm intentionally going to do this. Because and do you I think that was to. the chemo, lack of hormones, yes. you're fighting for your life, all of it? Probably all of it. I think it was the trauma response and the chemo. Yeah. And the chemicals from the chemo. Okay. The menopause, that whole thing. And, like, you know, we just, like, we're, sh- like, menopause takes a long time. Yeah. So, it's, like, just to sh- be shoved into it isn't normal. So, we were, like, shoved into it, and our bodies were, like, what the heck? Like, almost on? overnight, it oh, seemed yes, like. Yes, it did. So, and then the night sweats. It was just awful. Mm. Um, but, did was, you... so, during chemo, that was the worst. And then, after the surgery, like, those expanders were really fun. I mean, they were, like, they looked like porn star boobs. They were super <laughs> funny. So, like, they were, se- I mean, I got my sexuality back after that, um... I mean, did you find that you and Brad, like, had to expand your sexual repertoire, like, with what you did sexually? Like, what about when intercourse wasn't possible? Were there other things that you did or mm-hmm. other types of play or? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and that was, like, an ongoing conversation. Unfortunately, okay. he and I have a very open conversation about our sex, our sex life. Um, so it was, we're not... Yeah, we're very, we're, I don't know, we're not closed off when it comes Reserved. to... Reserved. Yes, thanks. So it's just, it wasn't, like I couldn't, I didn't feel comfortable talking to him about it. I was very comfortable talking to him about it. And then coming up with solutions, like is it that he's, like, he still needs something and I don't. How do we work with that? You know, we had a lot of dialogue around making sure everything was, everyone was getting their needs met. And being respected. Like, if I wasn't horny, I'm not having sex. Yeah. Just how it goes. So not pressuring yourself. No. Mm -mm. No, the only pressure I put on myself was, I feel like, again, when, once I would kind of get into it, then I could feel pleasure. And again, that's really, I think, healthy for stress and stuff, too. Yeah, it kind of speaks to responsive desire versus spontaneous Mm -hmm. right we think that oh we've got to be turned on or in the mood for sex and then we can start doing it oh no sometimes we're not really going to feel like doing it but we want to connect with our partner so we make a decision and a choice to start connecting and having a sexual experience and it's like oh okay i could i could kind of get into this or we're we're connecting in this way right now and that feels good so let's do this as long as it continues to feel good. If it doesn't, we'll stop. Or yeah. like you said, we'll try again tomorrow. Yep. Uh, but as long as it's about connection and it feels good and it's pleasurable, I think those need to be the goals of sex always. Right. But specifically when your body's battling a disease and your hormones are tanked and your body's all fucked up mm-hmm. and you're li- quite literally fighting for your life. Right. Yep. Exactly that. Exactly that. And the connection piece was really important. Because mm-hmm. we, that's, I mean, it's such an attachment piece too. You know, I need, I needed connection. I was like alone fighting all day, doing all this stuff by myself. And then I would see Brad and I just want to have that physical touch and the deep connection, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So do what do you think... Like, say the two of you would have been a little bit more of a reserved couple. 
what do you think would have been helpful to help you be less reserved or to still be able to connect and talk with one another about sexuality? Like, would you have any words of feedback or encouragement for couples who maybe are struggling with those things? I mean, it wouldn't hurt to have a therapist. Right? Like you. (laughs) Nice plug right there. (laughs) To go help someone learn how to advocate or, you know. Yeah. I don't know if every, maybe, maybe I'm not reserved about sex because I am a relational therapist. Yes, that could be. And I've learned, you know, Brad and I have probably the healthiest sex life I've ever had with a partner, you know, and maybe it's because I have some skills now Mm -hmm. to actually talk with him about these things. So, yeah, I don't know. Choice, it always, you know, choice is a big one. Always remembering we have choice and all of this stuff and then being able to speak for what your needs are. Yeah. And what you're feeling. Having the conversation probably too. Like, I mean, how often do, you know, there's like questioning, right? It's like, I wonder what he's thinking. I wonder what she's thinking. It's Mm. just like, you know, having the actual conversation of like, hey, honey, this is what's up for me. I know this sucks. Or, you know, how are you feeling? Just Just always talking to your partner. I think a lot of people are hesitant to talk about the tough parts, especially regarding sex, because all the books, I shouldn't say all, a lot of books will say, be strong for one another, be strong for your partner. And so knowing that society in general can have sort of a negative connotation with vulnerability, especially regarding sex, Mm -hmm. I feel like some couples and some cancer patients and survivors or some partners don't talk about it because they see it as weakness or they're hesitant to say I'm not feeling horny tonight or let's try tomorrow because they don't want to be a letdown Mm -hmm. and I don't know if you ever experienced that but I know Mm -hmm. Jeremy spoke to this when he was on the podcast with me like Heather's fighting for her life I didn't I don't even feel like I got to ask her for sex Mm mm-hmm like couple I don't know I kind of feel like if you can't be talking about it you shouldn't be doing it mm-hmm. like that's kind of a mantra I encourage my couples and you know my clients to live by and that Jeremy and I kind of live by mm-hmm. um, and it sounds like talking about things was a big part of sex for you and Brad as well mm-hmm. yeah 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 we had to I don't know how we would not have been able yeah that would have sucked but there is a part, I mean, I think the other, on the flip side of what Jeremy was saying, as the person going through the treatment for what I was experiencing was more like, I am such a burden mm. and I can't say no yeah. because I'm such a burden. Like people are already giving up so much for me that I should at least be able to have sex, even mm. if it's not fun, you know? So like just an obligation for being cared for and it just seems like I mean cancer is a fun hater like it sucks the fun out of everything right so it's just kind of like everything I cannot just like not have sex too you know because sex again it was like it's such a part of at least my relationship yeah in a in a healthy way it's like it's so it's just like oh my god like I can't imagine like that too, hair, boobs, 
and sex. Like, you're going to take everything from me. I can't eat. What? Like, you know, so. Yeah, if you think about it, it takes our hair, eyebrows, eyelashes for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And then it chemo screws up your linings. Mm -hmm. So intercourse becomes challenging, if not impossible. And then, you know, some people struggle with things like neuropathy or things like that. And like our digestion and food and being able to nourish ourselves to have stamina and energy for sex, but then dryness and hormones. So what part of femininity and sex and sexuality is there left sometimes? Right. And And now we can't say no. Right. And, and you want to feel desirable Mm. to your partner because you feel like you look like shit because you do. Because you really do. I mean, yeah. I look at pictures and I'm like, I look like shit. I don't care what people say. How often did Brad tell you you looked cute, All though, or beautiful? All the time. Thank God. And if he wouldn't have tried to make out with me after <laughs> he said I was pretty, I wouldn't have believed him. <laughs> <laughs> so there is that. Like I, But I, I still want to feel desirable, you know, and like, because this is such a sexual cancer. It's like it takes away these sex organs, these parts of us that feel, yeah. are so sexual, I guess part of our sexual identity. I should say it was mine. So to have that removed, I needed, I almost like I needed sex. So I felt that still. Yeah. Okay. So from the perspective of Brad, what, maybe you can speak to this and maybe you have an answer, maybe not really, but what do you wish caregivers specifically knew about sex and sexuality? Or what would you encourage caregivers to ask their loved one who's going through cancer about sex and sexuality or what conversations should people really be having when it comes to this topic Mm. and going through treatment? Right. I feel like the person going through treatment should set the tone. Okay. What do do you mean? Like the care, a caregiver can say something like, you know, you still look beautiful to me. I still find you desirable. And if you're not feeling it, that's okay too. Something like that. Mm. You know, where you, you know, or even like trying, like soften the sex. It doesn't have to be intercourse. You know, there could be some different type of, of just sweet connection. Sharing sexiness, I call yeah. it. Yeah. Because there's lots of ways to have sex. Intercourse is like, we often think of that as a main event, but that does not even need to be part of it. Mm -hmm. You can take a bath. There's mutual masturbation. There's Mm -hmm. shower sex. There's Mm -hmm. using lubrication or Mm -hmm. um, flavored lubrication if it doesn't irritate your skin or, you know, ice cubes or heating and cooling lubricants and... Mm -hmm. Lots of different things that people can try. But I don't think people talk enough about this so that people know there are options. Like, Reverie, I don't think a lot of women even know that that's an option. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's awesome. Reverie's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I also have to remember that, you know, in my journey, we were just come, we were honeymoon phasing. So I think if you've been in a relationship longer, it might be different as well, you know, like. Good point. I, I, I think it, the, the stage of relationship that you're in probably matters. Yeah. A lot. So if you're married and you know that you're with your husband and you've been together for 15 years, what's five months of having li- just a little sex, mm. you know? For me, it was like we were together for six months 
And I wasn't going to be like, we're not going to have sex for five mm-hmm. when we've only been together for six. Yeah. Coming out of this really, this, a lot of, we have a lot of attraction. So I think that probably matters. Because mm-hmm. there's a part, because he and I were not in that type of relationship, what I did miss was the tenderness that can happen between a long committed relationship. Like when you're long term and committed, like the way he and I are now, right? Like when he took care of me, after my implant exchange, I didn't feel any sort of sexual anything with him because he was just tending to me and being sweet. Yeah. Right, that's different. So I think it's important to, the attachment can be through sweetness <laughs> and through tending and, you know. Through I love that. Caring for someone is really sexy. I love that. I think that's a really good reminder for people. Mm-hmm. Tenderness is sexy. It's so sexy. Caring for someone is sexy. I mean, there's, yes. Having, it was like, for me, the most pleasurable times for me on my journey with Brad during this experience was when I would be crying and he would just hold me and let me cry. Mm. And that was sexy. That was a big, for me, that to me is like a turn on, Mm. right? Versus like a little sex, whatever. So... Well, is there anything else that you feel like it would be helpful to discuss or for our listeners to know or anything that we haven't really touched on that you want to share kind of as we wrap up for this episode? Hmm. I don't think so. Okay. Maybe, like, I think it's important. I mean, I I went through my journey very much alone because I was a single woman living alone in a house by myself with my dog. Yeah. I think that's really tough. I think it's a different way of going through treatment. So, I don't know. Like, people who are are in my, my place, or even people who don't have a partner... You know, I think about them and I think about what that means for relationship or if we if we hear of someone who gets diagnosed and they don't have a partner, maybe thinking differently about that person. Yeah. Or what that person might need differently. Because it's a scary thing to go through. I mean, I became I came really tough. Oh, yeah. But I, you know, I also have a lot of trauma because I'm I had to go through that largely by myself. Mm -hmm. And there's something that's important about that for people to think about, I think. Yeah. You know, it's like listeners who are single or going through this in a single way, how, you know, how, helping them to get support, I think is really important because it's, it sucks to have to go through it all. And my therapist was like, saved my life. Having people like you saved my life. It was helpful, you know? Yeah. And then, um, if you're in a partnership, I think, yeah, the compassion piece, the softness piece is super important. Well, awesome. Thank you so much, Erin. There you have it. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, all my listeners, thank you so much for tuning into this episode, number four of Success Story. Um, I will put Erin's contact information and how to get in touch with her in the notes section of the podcast in case anyone has any questions. Is that okay if they reach out to you? Sure. Yeah. um, 
even if they're just interested in this equine assisted therapy, I think that some people might be super interested in that. So they might want to reach out to you for that. But thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for next time. And thanks so much, Erin, for being on this episode. We really appreciate you. Sure. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Success Story. We all know someone or are that someone who has been affected sexually because of illness and treatment. In the coming episodes, you will learn that there are ways to overcome and deal with these effects and still experience a life full of sexiness. Stay tuned for our next episode. And until then, keep creating your own success story.